Well, good morning. I'm excited to be with you guys as we get into the third message in our series called The Good Work. It is about making a difference in the world because changing the world is what Jesus died for. And for the last two weeks, we've been tracking through the book of Nehemiah. In the first week, we talked about how we can catch a vision for the good work that God has called us to do, to make a difference in the world. And making a difference in the world can sound like such an insurmountable task, but it really just begins with feeling a burden or a passion to meet a need. And then last week, we talked about keeping up the good work even when it gets hard, even when it means facing really difficult circumstances or having to engage opposition. And we can overcome those obstacles when we have our confidence in God. And confidence in God is not an escape from responsibility, but it is a hope for victory. And this morning, we'll be talking about the kind of people that God uses to accomplish the good work. You see, no matter where you are, whether you work in a factory or you work in the school system, maybe you stay at home with your kids. God has you there for a reason. And the good work is the specific plan or purpose that God has for you to live out. Whether that's sharing the gospel with your coworkers or being a light for Jesus in your school, maybe opening up your home to someone in need. For Nehemiah, the good work was going to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls that had laid in heaps of rubble for 140 years. Previously, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And then he heard that the city of Jerusalem was a disgrace, that the gates were burned, the walls were heaps of rubble. And so he went to the king of Persia, and before the most powerful man in history, Nehemiah asked if he could take a leave of absence from his job up to 12 years. And he asked the king if he could use lumber from the king's very own forest to rebuild the gates. And he asked the king if he could make arrangements for him to have safe travel and cross the borders. Nehemiah asked all of this from this very same man who shut down this project just a few years before. But because God was working in the situation, he moved the king of Persia to grant all of those requests. And before long, Nehemiah traveled 700 miles to Jerusalem. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, he spent three days just scoping out the situation and making an assessment of the project. And after that three-day assessment, he brought together all the people in the city and just had a pretty upfront conversation with them. He's like, guys, our city is in trouble. We are in a disgrace. Our walls are burnt and our gates are scorched. And so we need to do something about that. But Nehemiah told these men about God's faithfulness and how he worked in the heart of the king and took care of all of the details for Nehemiah to get to where he was in that moment. And they gave the men confidence that if God could get Nehemiah that far, that he would see them to the end of this project. And so the people in Jerusalem said, let's get to work. 
and they began the good work that God had for them and even continued that work when they faced opposition from the enemies of Israel. And even by modern day standards, Nehemiah stands out as a first class leader. One author lists all of Nehemiah's leadership qualities. I'll read you a few. Nehemiah established a reasonable and obtainable goal. He had a sense of mission. He was willing to get involved. He rearranged his priorities in order to accomplish his goal. He patiently waited for God's timing. He showed respect to his superior. He prayed at crucial times. He made his request with tact and graciousness. He was well prepared and thought of his needs in advance. He went through the proper channels. He took time to rest, pray, and plan. He investigated the situation firsthand. He informed others only after he knew the size of the problem. He identified himself as one with the people. He set before them a reasonable and obtainable goal. He assured them that God was in the project. He displayed God's confidence in facing obstacles. He did not argue with opponents. He was not discouraged by opposition, and he courageously used authority of his position. When I read through that list of everything that Nehemiah did for God, it can make me feel pretty incapable. Like, all, Nehemiah accomplished all of that, but I can't measure up to be a leader like Nehemiah to do that kind of work that he did. I don't have the position that Nehemiah had. As cupbearer to the king, he's pretty much like the vice president. I don't have that. I don't have the boldness that Nehemiah had. He put his life on the line before the king of Persia and even when the, the enemies of Israel wanted to attack them. I've never put my life on the line to do a work for God. I'm not a visionary like Nehemiah. He was able to inspire an entire city to get to work on a project that had been neglected for 140 years. I'm not persuasive like that. I can't get people inspired to work on a project like that. I feel like I don't have any kind of flashy talent or skills that quite measure up to Nehemiah. Do you ever feel that way too? You feel like you don't have any special talents. Like you don't have the skills to be very helpful and there always seems to be someone who can do the job better than you. But even if you feel that way, are you really disqualified or incapable of doing the good work that God has for you? And this morning we'll be answering the question, who does God use to make a difference in the world? I brought a few props with me this morning. First, I've got just this leather work glove. Pretty rugged, durable stitching, nothing too fancy. Then I've also got this rubber gardening glove. A nice rubber coating to keep it pretty waterproof. It's good for digging in the dirt. And then probably the most fancy glove of all is my winter glove. It's got this handy dandy zipper pocket on the front and a strap to keep snow from getting on the inside. These gloves, they're all designed with a different purpose. The work glove for doing construction, the gardening glove for digging through the dirt, and the snow glove for shoveling snow. They all have a different purpose in mind, but they're all 
designed for work. But what if I say to these gloves, all right, gloves, get to work. Build me a project, shovel snow. It's not going to do it. So I think, you know what? These gloves just need the right tools. Hang on a minute. Got a paintbrush, a screwdriver, some pliers. Set these gloves up with the right tools. All right, gloves, get to work. Go get them. All right. They have the right tools, but something is still missing. Maybe these gloves need more help. So I'll get a bunch more gloves here. Extra help on the project. All right, gloves, go get them. But you see, even though these gloves were designed for work, they cannot do that work until a living hand fills every part of the glove and does the work through the glove. It doesn't matter if the glove has fancy features or not. It doesn't matter if the gloves have the right tools or even more help from the other gloves. All that matters is if that hand is doing the work through the glove. Maybe you can already see where I'm going with this, that we are like those gloves. It doesn't matter so much if we have fancy talents or anything like that. It doesn't matter so much if we have the right tools or the extra help. All of that means nothing if we are not being used by God. Are you willing to be used by God? Because God uses the willing, not the qualified. If you'd like to track along with me, please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3. And this chapter is pretty much a list of all the people who helped on this project in the wall and the gates that they rebuilt. And I'm going to show here up on the screen, there were 10 gates that they repaired over the course of 52 days. I'm guessing they probably did rock, paper, scissors, shoot to see who would be working on the dung gate, but that's just speculation. This was an all-hands-on-deck project. They needed all the help that they could get, but not everyone was willing to be used by God. Let's look at verse 5 in chapter 3. Verse 5 says, The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. This entire chapter is about the people who put themselves to work in this project. And this is the only verse about the people who are not willing to do any work. Well, now, we don't know for sure, but it sounds like these nobles of Tekoa just thought that they were too high and mighty to submit themselves to supervisors and to get their hands dirty in doing the job that needed to get done. And this is really unfortunate because compared to most everyone else, these guys probably had more resources that they could contribute to the project. But they lacked the willingness and they were completely useless. I recently heard this quote from Paul Tripp. I thought it was so good that I wrote it down in my notebook. He said, your weakness is never in the way of your usability. Your delusions of strength are. I'll read that again. Your weakness is never in the way of your usability. Your delusions of strength are. You see, 
It's okay to make an honest assessment of yourself and realize that you are weak because our weakness can drive us to to depend on God and God's power shows up in our weakness. We get it backwards when we think that God only uses the people who are strong. We buy into the misconception that we have to have our lives all put together before God can use us. The nobles had status. They had resources. More than all the other workers, these guys could afford to put their day job on hold to help with this project. But since they were not willing to help, they were as useful as an empty glove. Let's take a look at the people who actually worked on this project. I'm going to be skipping around to a bunch of different verses, so it might be most helpful to just follow along on the screen. In verse 1 it says, Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Haniel. Uziel, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Shalom, son of Heloesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. One of the last movies that I watched was the second Mighty Ducks movie. And it's a fictional story about a young hockey team that goes to play in an international tournament. And if you've ever seen any kind of sports movie like this, you've pretty much seen them all. It's the same basic plot line, just packaged a little bit differently. We had a talented coach who had a pretty oddball bunch of kids to play hockey for him. Some of them had very unique personalities and some special talents, but none that really were helpful for hockey. This coach had one of his players who was a figure skater and had never played hockey before. Another player was a speed skater who didn't know how to stop. And he also had a Texas boy who was talented at rounding up cattle and some giant teenager who looked like a grown man and just plowed other kids over who passed off as a teenager. That was his group of team players to work with. And as the story goes on, it's a pretty rough start, but the kids have a lot of heart, and they finally make it through. And just like the underdog in these sports movies, Nehemiah's crew was a pretty ragtag group of guys Just imagine a reporter from the Daily Scroll going to interview Nehemiah about his team. Like, Nehemiah, what do you have to say about your team? And Nehemiah's like, well, first up, I've got Eliashib and and his boys working on the sheep gate. These guys specialize in sacrificing sheep to God. But this is an all-hands-on-deck project, and so these guys have had to abandon sheep. And then, (laughs) then we have the perfume makers. Hananiah has just released a new line of diffusers for his milk and honey perfume. 
It's hot and smelly work out there, but the other guys love working with them. And next, we have the goldsmiths. These guys specialize in working with fine metals. They haven't done much with boulders before, but their detail work is spot on. So we've got them on quality control. We also have the merchants. Man, these smooth-talking guys can motivate the workers like no one else. They just have to turn everything into a competition. And last up, we've got Shalom with all of his daughters. And those girls could give Samson a run for his money. Actually, up on the screen, I've got a picture of my younger sisters a couple years ago uh, building a sidewalk around my parents' house. And every time I read this and hear about this guy who brought his daughters to the project, I just think, yep, that would have been my dad. Like, if my family lived in biblical days, my dad would be out there with my sisters rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. There were probably some carpenters, maybe some stonemasons that helped with this project, but for some reason, they're not mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. Instead, the focus is on the not-so-qualified workers, the priests, the perfume makers, the goldsmiths, the merchants, and the daughters. And I think it just goes to show that God does not just use the qualified, God uses those who are willing. When I was younger, one of my first ministries in the church was music ministry. And if you know me at all, you know that I am very unqualified for that kind of ministry. In fact, I have zero musical talent. When I was younger, my piano teacher told me that she had students with disabilities who could play the piano better than me. But I was willing, and so I still played the piano in church when they would collect the offering. And on a few occasions, I even played the recorder in church with my sisters. But at least with the recorder, I learned as long as I hit the last note, it sounded like I played for the entire song. Probably the most shocking of all is when I was asked once to sing in a Christmas concert at church. But notice, they only asked me once because uh, they didn't want me doing that again. Yeah, because I cannot sing for my life. It's a wonder that God can even use me to do some public speaking. I don't know if I ever filled you guys in on the whole story of how I ended up in Tunkhannock. So I guess now's as good a time as any. You see, Rich knew that he'd be moving to Indiana and he needed somebody to fill his position here in Tunkhannock. So he started off with making a phone call to the smartest Bridgewater pastor. He's like, hey, can you come down and preach? And that pastor turned him down. So... Rich called the most good-looking pastor in all of Bridgewater. He's like, hey, I need somebody to fill in. Can you make it? But that pastor turned down his request. And so, going down the list, Rich finally called the best preaching pastor in all of Bridgewater, and that pastor turned him down. And so, when Rich called me and asked if I could come down to Tunkhannock, I was like, Rich, I cannot say no four times in a row. All right, I'll come down. Well, (laughs) maybe it didn't happen exactly like that. Honestly, I love being here, and I think that there's nothing better than living 100% for God and doing what he's called me to do. 
But sometimes I really don't feel like I'm qualified. I'm young and I feel like I have to work really hard to overcome my tone of voice and be an engaging public speaker. There was actually a time in seminary where I was really praying through this and asking that God would give me clarity if preaching was really a ministry that he would have for me. Because I was on the track to become a pastor. I wanted to be a good preacher, but I know that wanting to be good at something isn't the same thing as being good at something. And I just wanted to be faithful to God wherever he would have me. If I wasn't cut out for preaching, I wanted to be okay with that and not just try to make my own agenda. But I would pray, God, if you're calling me to preach, I'm asking that you would just give me the ability to do that. And I was so encouraged when I would think of guys like Moses and Jeremiah, guys who were not confident in their ability, but God called them to something greater. And so I'm going to read Jeremiah chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah. It says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. God has not called me to be a prophet like Jeremiah, but I can relate to him. Sometimes I feel like I'm too young or I just don't know what to say. But I'm super encouraged to know that when God calls us to do a good work, that he will equip us to carry it out. You've probably heard this before, but God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And the book of Nehemiah is not just about how God used a super talented leader to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The book of Nehemiah is about how God can use anyone who is willing to make a difference in the world. God's plans cannot be stopped. His power is never exhausted. Do you trust that God can really use you to make a difference? Maybe you look at the good work that God is calling you to and you think, I can't do that. You might have limitations. You might not feel qualified, but God is not limited in his ability to use you. You really can live out the purpose that God has for you if you are simply willing. And maybe you think, all right, I'm willing to make a difference for God, but where do I start? I bet many of the Israelites asked the same question. Let's look at verses 28 to 30. It says, Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelmiah, and Hayun, the sixth son of Zalpeth, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshalem, son of Berkiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Many of the guys mentioned here worked on the part of the wall that was closest to their house, 
And this makes sense to me because these are the guys who day in and day out look across their yard and see the wall of Jerusalem lying in a heap of rubble. And when they finally felt a burden to meet that, a need and were willing to put in the work, they started with the need right in front of them. And if you want to do a good work for God, but you don't know where to start, why not start by meeting the need right in front of you? You don't have to travel across the globe to make a difference in the world. You can meet the needs that are close to home. For some of the Israelites, the need was close to home, but this was not the case for everyone who came to help. In verse 2 of chapter 3, it says, The men of Jericho built the adjoining section and Zechur, son of Imri, built next to them. The men of Jericho actually lived 18 miles away across the desert. And so to get from Jericho to Jerusalem, these guys traveled about 10 hours on foot across the desert. Even when the need was not close to home, these guys were willing to help. Maybe there's a need right in front of you, or maybe you are being called to meet a need that is not close to home. But every time you think of meeting that need, you talk yourself out of it. You say to yourself that you could not be the one that God really wants to use to make a difference, that there is someone else who is way more qualified than you. And besides, you're just one person. What could one person really do to make a difference? Does God really need your help? I just imagine thousands of Christians around the world saying the same thing. Can I really make a difference? I say yes. Imagine the good work that God could do through thousands of Christians simply willing to make a difference. I just got done listening to this book called Brusco, and it's a true story about a 19-year-old kid in the 1950s who just felt a burden to take the gospel to Indian tribes in South America. And he tried to get support from a missions board, but that missions board turned him down. And he thought about giving up, but then he realized, it was like God was saying to him, that mission board turned you down, but I have not turned you down, and I still want you to take the gospel to, the, to these people. And so this kid named Bruce Olson hopped onto an airplane and flew to South America with only $70 in his pocket. And he spent the next couple years just trying to make arrangements for him to go into the jungle and take the gospel to these people. And finally, when he made it to the jungle, he had to deal with diseases and sicknesses that almost took his life. So many times he was on the brink of starvation he was even shot by Indians and taken captive by the very people that he felt called to reach with the gospel. And this one tribe that was particularly on his heart to reach was called the Modalone Indians. And at that point, no civilized person had ever made contact with them and lived to tell about it. And nobody knew their language. They were just avoided at all costs. But these were the people that Bruce felt called to reach. And so he finally made contact with them and spent about two years just trying to learn their language and build a friendship with them. And finally, 
he was able to share the gospel with one of these guys. And this Indian made a decision to follow Jesus. And then he shared the gospel with the rest of the tribe. And almost that entire tribe came to faith in Jesus. And then this tribe began taking the gospel to the tribes that they were actually fighting against. And over the course of time, they adopted modern medicine and even built a school for sending missionaries out to reach other foreign people. When I think about someone who's qualified to do a work like that, I don't think of a 19-year-old kid with 70 bucks in his pocket. But what set Bruce apart is that he was simply willing. And I think about who would actually be qualified to reach these people who's who nobody else knew their language. Nobody else was qualified, but Bruce was willing and God was able to use him despite all of the odds stacked against him. And I believe that God can use us too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the strength that you give us to do uh, the good work that you would have for us. Because, Father, I cannot do it alone. None of us can do it in our own strength. We need you to show up, and we know that there is nothing better than living for you 100% and doing all that you've called us to do. And so I ask that we would take that seriously and take a step today in doing the good work that you have for us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.